Remembering and Self-Narratives with Regina Fabry. Who are we and how do we know who we are? Often the answers to these questions seem self-evident. I am simply the person I see in the mirror who lives in this house with this particular bathroom mirror. But various events such as significant illness, major emotional trauma or memory loss complicate this simplistic view. After such events, we may no longer feel like the same person. So what accounts can help navigate the complexities of identity? One approach taken by philosophers is to propose that we make sense of ourselves through self-narratives or telling stories. I know who I am as I can link a range of events as my story, such as where I was born, interactions with my siblings, how I acquired this scar and that one, and remembering the different houses I have lived in. On some accounts, the self is constituted by the contents of our self-narratives, and it is through narratives that we know our own actions, traits and experiences. But if this is the case, what counts as a self-narrative? And what role does autobiographical memory play in our self-narratives? Here to help us think about these issues today is Dr Regina Fabry, who is an ARC-funded research fellow in the Philosophy Department at Macquarie University. Welcome, Regina. Thank you, Wendy. I'm delighted to be here. Regina, you've recently published an article on distributed autobiographical memories and distributed self-narratives. In the article, you engage critically with the arguments of another philosopher, Richard Heersmink. Before we turn to those details, can you give us some background to the debate? What are self-narratives and why are they important? Thank you. So perhaps I could start answering those questions by taking the last question first. Why are self-narratives important? So the received view is that self-narratives contribute to the knowledge we have about ourselves, that self-narratives somehow contribute to our self-understanding. So I can know who I am, I can can understand my past actions, my past decisions in virtue of narrativizing those past experiences, those past actions and decisions. So against that background, a lot of people have argued that self-narratives do play a particular role in linking what I did in the past to the kind of person uh, that I'm now. But actually, I think that it's entirely unclear what self-narratives really are. If you take a closer look, and I actually just published a paper a few weeks ago with the title, What a Self-Narrative, where I take a closer look at the different conceptions and descriptions of self-narrative that are put on the table by philosophers. So just to give you a brief overview of the field, I would like to to sketch three different positions that have been developed. So the first and probably most important one is the narrative self-constitution view by Maria Schechtman. So she basically argues that we develop what she calls an implicit self-narrative. So it's something that's in the back of our minds. We might not be consciously aware of it. And we have this kind of life story that we keep spinning all the time, our life story, if you like. But then it's entirely clear what these implicit organizing uh, principles that she presupposes really are, how they work, and how something that's so implicit, so unavailable to conscious awareness, can be narrative and form after all. The second position that I would like to mention uh, was proposed by Peter Goldie um, in his account of self-narrative thought. So he argued that 
one of the most important forms of self-narrative are actually generated, created in and through thinking. So rather than assuming that publicly shared self-narratives are crucially important for our self-understanding and our self-knowledge, he argued that we think all the time in terms of stories when we want to understand our emotions, our past experiences, how we relate to other people. But then again, there's no empirical evidence available, for example, that that's how people actually think. And philosophically speaking, it's also not quite clear how something that we do when we think is sufficiently narrative and form. And then thirdly, there's this kind of account that I've been developing where the basic idea is that self-narrative is something that we do all the time and we do it together, we do it with other people in conversation, we do it in writing. More recently we might also engage in self-narratives online by engaging with social media platforms such as uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for example. I'm not the first person suggesting such a view, so people like Richard Minari, Daniel Hutto, Sean Gallagher and others have argued that indeed self-narratives is something communicated, something entirely social, entirely cultural, and it's not something that's hidden away in our brains um, as you like, it's something that's world-engaging and world-revealing ultimately. That's made me think of a question we didn't talk about before, but so what happens to someone, a very isolated person, a hermit, or someone living in a a cave meditating 24 hours a day? Does that mean they don't have a self-narrative? I think, yeah, that's a really important question. Um, Then you would say they still have some kind of, if you don't take extreme cases like Kasper Hauser, say, so if they have developed some kind of linguistic competence, then you can still say at least they have a history of this kind of social engagement and social storytelling. But even if that's not a case, even if we, if we construct a scenario where a person has always been perfectly isolated and they might not have this urge for self-understanding and self-expression in the first place, then yes, maybe they don't have a self-narrative. But that's not really a problem for my account because I don't make claims like Schechtman that you know self-narrative constitutes who we are. You know, my view can say yes, self-narratives are important, but probably not as important as people like Maria Schechtman or Peter Gordy would lead us to assume. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. Regina, both you and Richard Hearsmink make use of the concept of distributed cognition. This is the view that at least some cognitive processes extend from the brain to the rest of the body and out to the local environment. Can you tell us a bit more about this view? Sure, absolutely. So in order to understand what's special about this kind of view, let me just give you a very quick overview of the recent history of philosophy of mind and cognition in the second half of the 20th century. So for a long time it was thought that if we want to understand how people think, how people feel, how people remember, how people imagine their futures, it's enough to understand what's happening in the brain. And then in the 1990s, people really started to challenge this kind of view and they recognised that if you really want to make progress in understanding the human mind, then we need to understand that people do not only have brains, but they have also full bodies and they engage with their environment through and with their bodies. And 
that environment includes other people and it includes all kinds of artifacts and tools and objects, cultural practices and all of that. Um, so starting uh, in the 1990s, different people have developed theoretical accounts that can help us make sense of this kind of brain-body-environment interaction that then leads to thinking, cognizing, remembering, imagining, and so on and so forth. And then there have been different theoretical accounts, and one of them is distributed cognition. And there the idea is that if you want to understand how people remember, how people navigate, how people solve problems, then we need to identify different components, some of them located in the brain, some of them located in the rest of the body, and yet others located in the environment, and we need to map the interaction and this inter it is this interaction that then gives rise to cognitive processes. So that's uh, the basic idea of distributed cognition. Thank you. That's a lot of complex material explained beautifully <laughs> clearly. What are the implications of the distributed cognition thesis for self-narratives? So I already mentioned that I make the assumption that self-narration is something that's realised in virtue of our embodied interaction with our environment. It's something that we do, it's entirely social, it's entirely cultural. And if we make that assumption, then I believe distributed cognition offers us a very important and well-developed conceptual framework. And we can then use that framework for more detailed theoretical considerations, but also for empirical research, if we want to understand better empirically how people use self-narratives to understand themselves, to engage with other people, and to map their experiences uh, across time in different configurations, either in conversation, for example, or in writing, or online. Yes, I really, I really like that idea, and the, and the, and because to me, with background in medicine, it, I sort of think, well, maybe self narratives. You know, if, if somebody has a has had a, like post traumatic stress disorder, we might want to understand that as a as a broken self narrative in a way, or a stuck self narrative. And I think some of the approaches that are being used now are to try and replace the traumatic memory with a more more normal, distant memory, which which can then we can then move on past and put that experience in the past as a memory, a bad memory, but not not the whole of our narrative. And so I like that connection between the theoretical framework and empirical work that then may you know, have implications for people's well-being. Okay, look, thanks. We've got the background to the debate. Um, so what does Richard Hearsmink claim about self-narratives and, and why, don't, uh, why, do, why do you find problems with his account? Let me first mention that Richard has been very valued friend and collaborator and colleague for over 10 years now and he's done wonderful work on, on autobiographical remembering and narrative identity uh, over the last several years. And given the importance of his work, I started to take a very close look at what he argues for, how he argues, and he's developed one argument in particular that I found appealing. And then I realized actually there are at least two problems that I see with this argument. So the argument goes like this. The first assumption is that autobiographical memories are distributed in the sense that it is uh, specified. So autobiographical mem remembering in many cases involves um, other people or objects in the environment. And then the second assumption that he makes is that autobiographical memories are what he calls building blocks of self-narratives. From that, he infers that self-narratives are also distributed. 
And I think um, there are two problems with this argument. So the first problem just comes from informal logic. Um, so I think he's committing a fallacy of composition here just because certain parts have the property of distributedness. It doesn't follow that the whole also has the same property of distributedness in this case. So this is like, I think, the more formal ultimately not particularly interesting problem. The more interesting, the second problem that I see in his work is that he assumes that his distributed cognition view is entirely compatible with Maria Schechtman's narrative self-constitution view that I criticized earlier. So I think that Schechtman's view about implicit self-narrative is a really bad fit ultimately with um, distributed cognition accounts. And I think it is that problem that really needs to be addressed. So how does your account do this? So what I'm trying to do is to offer an alternative um, view of self-narratives that indeed describes them as generally distributed. So what I'm trying to do is to offer an account that works independently of his argument in a way. And I do this by looking at two particular kinds of self-narrative where my account combines work and philosophy, the cognitive sciences, and also uh, cognitive narratology. So the first kind I call spontaneous conversational self-narrative. So that is simply the idea that very often when we talk to each other, when we talk to friends, family members, our loved ones, colleagues at work, um, we spin these little narrative configurations about past experiences, but also about future plans that have particular characteristics. And we do that in conversation. And that means that this is not something that's you know just happening to the individual. This is not me sitting opposite of you and you're non-responsive. You look at me, you nod, you make eye contact, you might use gestures, you have a particular body posture, you might ask follow-up questions and all of that shapes and co-shapes and reshapes the self-narrative that I'm developing. And in that sense, I think that conversational self-narratives are distributed and do fulfill the usual criteria for distributed cognition. The second kind that I'm particularly interested in um, is textual self-narration, which is the idea that we also construct and create um, self-narratives through text in writing, where this kind of writerly and readerly engagement is itself a cognitive and, and, and cultural practice, and that comes with different opportunities also for self-narrative expression and engagement, because obviously you don't have an immediate other to talk to, but you have conventions, you have a space to use, so to speak, so you can influence the flow of your narrative, if you like, through using the written space on the page or on the screen, and that gives you all kinds of opportunities for shaping and reshaping and reconfiguring your self-narrative. I guess I see the textual self-narratives as a little bit different from the conversational ones because with the conversational ones you can go back and say, oh, actually, I didn't quite mean that, I meant this. And with the textual ones, they're much more sort of polished or presented as a, it's, it's like a performance in a way. This is, this is the self-narrative I'm going to show to the world. Whereas in informal conversation, particularly with very trusted uh, interlocutors, you might say things that 
you don't mean and when you hear yourself say them you say no actually no that's not really what I want to say that's not how I want to be so I see that's sort of a difference between them is that a, a relevant difference the sort of the more polished performative nature of the textual ones yeah absolutely and I think that's that's a very very important point to make you might even think about textual self-narrative that are published in, in a traditional way as a curated. So this is my curated self-narrative. And of course, you then have the tendency, which you might also have in conversational self-narrative to a certain degree and in different ways, to cater to the expectations of your audience, right? You might gloss over experiences where you were not a particularly great person, where you felt ashamed, where you humiliated yourself or people you care about and so on and so forth. So you might gloss over that, for example. And in the case of when we think about published autobiographies and memoirs, then of course you cater to a particular audience with a particularly educated understanding of what a good memoir should look like or you cater to a particular audience because you have you know financial interest because publishing is a business model as well so there are all these problems in the background as well that then also lead away from this understanding of self-narrative is something that's conducive to self-knowledge. That's right, it could go in both directions. It could lead to both public and self-deception as well as as well as um, self-knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. And memoirs are really having a moment, aren't they? With uh, Yeah, I remember I finished one yesterday, in fact, but they seem, every second book I read about seems to be a memoir at the moment. Absolutely, and then yeah. it gets really interesting also like why those memoirs are written and who they're written for and why there is this yeah memoir boom almost like why are we so terribly interested in reading about somebody else's life yeah. about the lives of people that we've never ever met and probably will never meet and why are we so interested in engaging with this kind of yeah not often too literary text but this kind of mm. yeah textual self-expression and why are we upset when their dog dies <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, that yeah. the dog died in the one i was reading yesterday yeah so in, in your discussion about textual self-narratives and autobiography and memoir, you use the beautiful term evocative objects coined by Sherry Turkle. Can you explain what they are and, and what role they play in self-narratives? Yeah, sure. Uh, so evocative objects, according to, to Sherry Turkle, are objects that are intimately connected to how we think and feel, basically. So it's a very wide umbrella term, if you like. So those can be objects that help us regulate our emotions, that can be objects that help us remember past events uh, that matter to us. And there's really a wide range of objects that are covered by that notion, ranging from memorabilia, souvenirs, to particular books that matter to us, jewellery. So... Just to give you one example, the, the ring I'm wearing now, I bought that with my best friend um, a few months back at a beautiful jewellery shop. And every time I look at this ring, I think of my friend, I think of that particular experience. I can relive, so to speak, this particular part of our friendship and this particular experience that we share together so that we would be one way in which an object can evoke particular memories, but also particular emotions related to a friendship, for example. So that would be the idea. 
Um, I've got a rather battered water bottle here, which was given to me uh, 15 years ago by some friends in Switzerland. And every time I look at it, like with your ring, I, I think fondly of my friends and remember the nice time we had in Switzerland. I suppose in previous times we might have called that an object with sentimental value um, over and above its value as a water bottle or your ring, its monetary value. But I like Turkle's term evocative object because sentimentality is sometimes not disparaged I guess as a, as a as an emotional response whereas a evocative object sounds much more sophisticated and and uh, more worthy in a way yeah I totally agree and I think it's also more prone than to empirical research because then you can use this notion of evocation and that can then as I just started explicating be sort of like open up and something can evoke the emotion of love the emotion of sadness also or it can indeed evoke a particular memory um, which is then uh, particularly important in, in the context of this question how narrative and memory how they really relate. Regina um, where do you plan to go with this research? So I'm currently trying to to move this research into two different areas so the first area that I find particularly interesting at the moment has to do with the social role of self-narratives. So if we take this notion of distributed cognition seriously and uh, if my understanding of self-narratives is on the right track, namely that they're social and cultural and shared, then that has the implication that self-narratives might not be particularly important for self-knowledge or self-understanding after all. What might be an important role for them is entirely social. So, for example, it could well be that self-narratives invite empathy. So if I share a particular self-narrative with you, I might, I might do that because I would like you to empathize with me, to understand my past behavior, to understand the kind of person that I am or aspire to be. Another role and related roles for sure might also be that self-narratives could be in the service of establishing trust. So if I share a self-narrative with you, I show you that I trust you, that I'm happy to share a particular part of my life experience with you through narrative and the other way around. And I would like to, to look more at the philosophy and cognitive science of both empathy and trust and trusting and see whether that's a good way, maybe a better way to think, think about self-narratives and what they actually do for us. And the second area that I started exploring is the role of self-narratives in uh, the digital age. So I think I alluded to it earlier when I said that self-narratives most probably do play a role in social media, but we don't really know that much about it, at least not from a philosophical perspective. So I'm interested in the question what kind of self-narratives we find online, so for example on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and how they're used both by their authors, so to speak, but then also by, yeah, I don't want to say the users, I don't like the word, but the people online who then engage with those self-narratives as an audience. And relatedly, given all the public and academic discussion um, surrounding uh, chat GPT and other technologies. I'm also interested in the question whether those kind of developments change our basic understanding of the merits and, and values we attach to self-narratives. 
Wow, it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do there. Um, I've got some sympathy with that idea of self-narratives as sort of social tools that work to um, help humans achieve the things they want, like to get people to trust them or to empathise with them. And then, of course, you've got problems of deceptive narratives, which which then lead to ill-founded trust and yeah, a lot of a lot of things to unpack there. Um, but thanks, Regina. It's a really interesting topic, but that's all we've got time for. If you wish to read Regina's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thank you for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency Values and Ethics. And I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers. This is a Piccolo podcast production.